About Empathy is a podcast about patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. This podcast gives voice to their stories. With each episode, we hope these engaging discussions inspire you to have more empathic, authentic, and compassionate conversations. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani, and I'm here with my co-hosts. Dr. Jory Sagracha. And I'm Dr. Irene Yang. For years, we've worked together, taught together, and learned from each other in our roles as palliative care physicians. Thank you for listening. Mitch Konsky is a Toronto-based journalist. His work has been published in the Globe and Mail, CTV News, and other international news outlets. Mitch has written and published a book entitled Home Safe, a memoir of end-of-life care during COVID-19. This work is centered around his father, Harvey Konsky, a Toronto-based lawyer and beloved family man. A portion of Mitch's author royalties will be donated to Cancer Research at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Thank you so much for being with us on About Empathy today, Mitch. Thank you so much for having me. We wanted to start off by hearing a little bit more about your father, Harvey. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad was full of deadpan humor. His sense of humor never really wavered throughout his decline. He loved dancing in his underwear to Shakira. (laughs) In my book, I have a chapter called Dads Who Dance in the Underwear Society that sort of alludes to that. (laughs) He was a family man and he put his family first. He grew up in a small town in Northern Ontario called Madawa. It's about a 30 minute drive east from North Bay. And his parents built a movie theater there. And, you know, for the first few years of my father's life, he and his siblings, they lived on, on this sort of this apartment above the movie theater. And then later they moved to a house across the street. But my dad lost both of his parents when he was really young. He lost his mom when he was 15. And he lost his dad when he was 22. Mm. And he never really spoke about them until he was dying himself until um, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer during the onset of the pandemic. And I'm a journalist. And so I sort of, I leaned into my journalistic intuitions and I interviewed him throughout his decline. And through these interviews, I was able to hear this completely new vulnerable side of him that I wasn't really able to hear before. That's amazing. And we've read your book and it's touching and it's emotional and it's such a, it's such a legacy that you've left. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And I think for us, with our work in palliative care, it was really striking to see that when your father was diagnosed with cancer, your mother, Arlene, she decided she would help create a care plan for him that included many family members to create a web of support. And you have many family members who are actually in healthcare. And as his illness progressed, you all agreed to create a home hospice for him at the end of his life. So when making that family decision to provide him home palliative care, what were some of the reasons why this was important to your father and to your family? It was almost the most obvious choice, mostly because this was happening right when everybody was in quarantine. So we really had to choose between bringing him to a hospice facility or bringing him to a hospital and not seeing him versus having him in our house and being able to spend these last moments with us. We were able to look at this option as an opportunity to have all these bittersweet family moments that I don't think we would have been able to otherwise. So it really was, it was the most obvious decision. As I write in my book, my mom was the captain of our ship. She was able Mm -hmm. to utilize all these different family members. So within my family, we have three emergency physicians. We have a registered dietitian, a couple social workers, a neurologist, a general surgery resident. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of of healthcare expertise. Mm. 
And during the onset of the pandemic, we really had to decide our priorities. They had to determine whether they were going to report to their frontline obligations and also navigate the, the distance that came with that versus this family-based approach to end-of-life care. And so it really it evolved into an opportunity for all of us to come together, create this sort of this bubble, this, this pandemic bubble, this hospice at home. And it really just was the most obvious choice on how to handle everything. Yeah, that makes sense. It almost sounds like you had an embedded palliative care team yeah. of yeah. of family members Absolutely. and loved ones. And I, and I see what you're saying, too, about the options of either being in hospital and being disconnected from family or being at home and staying connected. So I can see why I made that decision as a team. Right. You know, the thing is, I think regardless of the pandemic, it was it was also just this beautiful opportunity that I think, you know, there's just so much value to a home hospice. There's so mm. much that it can do. You know, I know that there's incredible hospice programs out there, but something about being able to spend so much time with him, mm. it really opened the doors to so many amazing conversations. Mm -hmm. When you do home palliative care, you become a caregiver to your loved one. What was that like for you? You're very young. That might not have been a role you had been in before. And, you know, it was happening during a pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about what the joys of that were, what the challenges were? Absolutely. So I wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail about yes. the role reversal that often emerges when a child has to take care of a sick parent. And immediately what was so apparent to me based on the, the response that I got after the article was published was really how unremarkable it is, but unremarkable in a way that made it resonate a little bit more. It was such a familiar experience with so many people. Yeah. There was this weird, bittersweet blessing that came with the opportunity for me to be able to take care of him the way that he always took care of me. As I write in that piece, you know, my dad would always check on me at night. Whenever I would come home after, you know, a, a party or whenever I was visiting home from university, my dad would always be waiting for me at the top of the stairs. He'd be slouching there in his boxers, asking me how my night went. Yeah. Throughout his decline, that didn't really change, although there was still this role reversal. There was still this almost desperation for me to feel like the kid again and for him to seem like the father. We're not always blessed with the opportunity to give out what we've received. And I was able to look after him. And in the weirdest way, I'm so thankful that I was able to. That's lovely. I noticed in your writing as well, your dad was quite the caregiver to you before the cancer happened. And I really was struck by when he came to your room in 2015 after your friend had died suddenly. And you say nothing more needed to be said, no words of wisdom, no fatherly lecture to ease my suffering was required, no promises about better days to come, nothing but knowing he was with me. That was incredibly impactful. In fact, I'd say your dad, in addition to being an amazing lawyer, could have been an amazing palliative care doctor, because that's what we try <laughs> to do. We can't always fix things, but... We want people to know we're there for them. How did that impact you being able to take care of him? Right. I mean, I think that that's a moment that is telling in terms of how little needs to be said. We often will try to fill empty silences to make people feel more comfortable, but often it's a matter of just being with the person and that's really it. And there's a scene that I write about towards the end when my dad is first told that the treatment didn't work and that all we can really do is make him comfortable. Yeah. I remember that the administration at Sunnybrook, they actually bent the rules. Patients really weren't allowed visitors with them at this point. Mm. But my father's oncologist, Dr. Teresa Petrella at Sunnybrook, she arranged to allow me to come with her. 
And what I write about is, you know, Dr. Petrella, she was explaining the situation. She was explaining that immunotherapy wasn't working and that there really wasn't any options. And her words were saying one thing, but her eyes were saying something else. It was that moment of eye contact that really showed what, what in a way we weren't getting in the pandemic. We weren't really getting it because we were all speaking to each other through phones or computers. I think it goes to say that there's so much that can be said just by looking someone in the eyes and showing them that you're with them. And there's this lexicon of communication that comes with just eye contact and just the mere presence. And I think that all that pressure to say the right thing, there's no merits to it. It's, it's really just about being there. And that's kind of the beauty of palliative care, really just making the patient feel as comfortable as possible, reminding them that they're not alone. Yeah. And I think that that's how it informed my experience with my dad. That was very lovely. Very well said. Thank you. Yeah, that is very lovely. It reminds me of the struggles that we faced as palliative care physicians during the pandemic, like literally yeah. calling every palliative care unit on a weekly basis to see who was bending the rules more right. so that yeah. we could get patients into places where, you know, their families could be by their sides for the longest period of time. And it would change like weekly. Right. And so it was, it was always like just a continuous battle. So it was really nice that you were able to keep your dad at home. You talked a bit just now, Mitch, about a blessing, what a blessing it was to be able to have that role reversal and to be able to take care of your father who had taken care of you for so many years. And in your book, you also allude to that often used metaphor of putting your oxygen mask on yourself first before putting it on the other person. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that because I find I sometimes struggle as a physician. You know, caregiving, you call it a blessing, but it's not easy by any stretch. It's very hard. And I oftentimes will see caregivers, you know, burning out, obviously stretching themselves very thin. And I want to tell them that they need to take time for themselves, but I also don't want to give them the added pressure of putting something else on their plate when all they want to do in that moment is to take care of their person. So do you have any advice for healthcare providers on, you know, should we broach that discussion, that topic? If so, how do we do that? Right. So my mom, she's a social worker at Baycrest. And she, she often brings up that quote about putting on an oxygen mask on yourself first before you can help the other person. And the way that she really integrate that in our treatment plan or an end of care service was to have sleeping routines and to make sure that, you know, we're able to walk outside, we're able to get some fresh air, we're able to speak to people, we're able to have our network of friends that can, that can help lift us up in these really dark moments. For me, putting on my oxygen mask really came down to talking to friends that have experienced something similar. I have a few friends that lost a parent in their 20s and I was able to go on walks with them. And, and you know, every cancer case is different and, and there's no expectation that their experience is going to be the same as my experience. But I had one friend and just seeing how grief hadn't swallowed him whole, how he was still standing, that was really the ultimate reminder that whatever happens, you know, I'm going to be okay. We're going to get through this. When it comes to putting on your own oxygen mask, I think there's so much that you can do. I think movies and TV, and they kind of enforce this narrative of being 100% selfless when it comes to taking care of somebody who's dying. That's beautiful, but you're not going to have a lot of gas in your tank if you're giving everything, if you're not able to sleep, if you're not able to take care of yourself. So I think ultimately you're doing a disservice by not putting on that oxygen mask and not 
allowing yourself to be the best version of yourself. And I think, you know, the reality for my situation is that my dad had about two and a half months. It was a really short amount of time, but I do know that other palliative situations, they can span out over years. It can take a long time and that can take a toll on caregivers. Mm -hmm. So depending on the circumstances, of course, you really have to find opportunities to check in on yourself and make sure that you're okay, because otherwise you're just not going to be able to be the best caregiver that you can be. And thank you for asking that, because I think that it's so true. Actually, when you were mentioning, you know, your coping mechanisms of reaching out to your friends who went through similar situations, it reminded me of how you and your friend had coined the term big back moments, yeah. right? For those situations where your, your person had moments of lucidity or seemed to turn back to, you know, the person they once were. How did hearing about the potential of these Big Mac moments change how you responded when you had your own Big Mac moment with your dad later on? Well, I'll give a little context. I have a friend who his mother was diagnosed with with stage four cancer a few years ago. And shortly after a, a surgery on a metastasized brain tumor, she was very close to the end and you know, my friend, Mike, he, he went in to check on her. And, and at this point, he thought that she lost her ability to speak and, and, and move. And, and there was this moment where she looked at him and she said, hey, Mike, you want to go to McDonald's? And he couldn't believe that this was coming out of his mother's mouth right now. And she's like, I'm starving. I really want a Big Mac. So he went to the nearest McDonald's drive through and he came back with a couple Big Mac burgers and he sat down and he ate them with his mom. His mom ate what she could. He told me he'll never forget that burger. And it's those moments, those in-between glimmers of return, which punctuate the entire end-of-life care experience because it brings you out of, you know, the fear. It brings you out of the anxiety and it confronts you with this presence that you really can't get when you're always thinking about what's going to happen next. And I think that just being aware of those glimmers, being aware of that presence, I think it informed the book. It informed this awareness of how blessed I am. And it also made me realize how many Big Mac moments were all around me. My dad, God bless him, he was cracking these horrible dad jokes all the way until the end. And, you know, my sister, she got engaged at his bedside on the last night of his life. He was fully aware he was able to give them a little speech about marriage. He was able to tell the story of his proposal to my mom. There was another Big Mac moment where I was actually just receiving my master's of journalism certificates. The convocation was canceled because of pandemic restrictions, but we held a, a makeshift convocation ceremony on my father's bedside. And my dad clapped with pride and he was there. And I think the whole book is really about these Big Mac moments. They're really about these glimmers of return. And I think when we look at grief retrospectively, it's easier for us to sort of look at it as, as the ultimate direction. You know, he was doomed. You know, there was, there was little hope. There was nothing we can do. But if you take away the eventual outcome and look at them as, as a series of individual moments, instead of just looking at it all collectively, you're able to see how much it can really offer. And those Big Mac moments, they offered us a lot. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you, Mitch. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think connected a little bit to those Big Mac moments, your father 
Harvey had experienced an episode of delirium before he died and he was in the hospital. And you talked in the book about how that anticipation of losing him, losing him even before his death was really upsetting for you. After he came home from the hospital, he was actually well enough for a period to join a pre-trial Zoom meeting for one of his clients. So how did it feel to see him in his element after that episode of delirium? It was remarkable. And I think, you know, he's always been so passionate about helping his clients about law. And one of my favorite books is, is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalinthe. And, you know, he speaks about the need to have a, a sense of mastery. And, and Paul was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in his mid thirties. And he decided to continue reporting to work despite the fact that his body was shutting down. And I was able to think about that when I was seeing my father return to work and this idea that he wasn't just a victim, that he was able to take agency over his own life, that he was able to take control. And he was in his, you know, his familiar domain of legal jargon and pretrial proceedings. You know, in that moment, he wasn't just a patient dying with cancer. He was somebody that was able to help somebody else too. It was this beautiful moment. And he was wheeled out of the hospital a night before. And previously, he wasn't able to sit down for more than 15 minutes at a time because his primary tumor was actually in his rectum. And so sitting down was excruciating for him. But here he was sitting at a pretrial for almost three hours. It was just so inspirational. It was this incredible lesson about being willing to give it whatever you can and, and do your best despite the circumstances that are against you. That imagery of him, I was picturing him at the pretrial and him being in his element in that way. It, it made me think it may have filled him with a sense of dignity and pride that he was able to engage in that again and to help someone else because he did seem very other focused, your father. He did seem focused on his family and on, on his clients and, and, you know, helping people through. So that he was able to have that opportunity, I think, was really meaningful. I wrote an article about palliative care with CTV, and we spoke about how it's important to determine the priorities of every patient that's going through palliative care. Right. We knew from the beginning that my dad wasn't one to just sort of detach from his work. And he was still able to be present with us. He was still able to enjoy these family moments, but he wasn't willing to give up his obligation. And I think what's so important when families are having these palliative care discussions is to determine those priorities. And instead of pressuring the patient to you know, detach from whatever their work is because of fear of it being too stressful or whatever. I think it's, it's okay to encourage, it's okay to allow, so long as it provides them with that sense of purpose, which I think is really all we can give them as their body is shutting down. It's a great point, just yeah. making that time as meaningful as possible. And if that includes working and engaging in that work, supporting that as much as possible. Absolutely. So Mitch, as we come to the end of our conversation, at the end of each of our episodes, we ask our guests to complete the statement, if only they knew. So wondering from your perspective, for healthcare providers, what would you want them to know about supporting a patient at home and providing compassionate care at the end of life? So drawing from your experience, how would you complete that statement, if only they knew? If only they knew how beautiful of an opportunity it could be to say your final goodbyes, to have these final conversations, to speak to the person that, that they're not going to be able to speak to again. There's so much that 
can be accomplished. And, and I mean, that might be the wrong term because I think that that can lead to expectations. It can lead to the pressure of, of trying to turn it into something bigger. But I'm talking more about the accomplishment of presence, the accomplishment of just being there, being able to hold their hands and look them in the eye and tell them that they're not alone. If only they knew how familiar their experience is to other people. I want to quickly plug Camp Air in Toronto, which is a bereavement camp for kids between the ages of four and 16 that have all lost a parent or a sibling. Mm. I was a volunteer very recently this past June. I'm going to be a volunteer probably for the rest of my life. It's a weekend getaway camp. They bring a bunch of kids up to Muskoka. Nice. It really is this reminder of how universal the experience of grief mm. is. You know, it's so easy when you're losing someone you love to feel like you're an anomaly and that you're separate from everybody else. And nobody will understand how you're feeling. But the reality is so many people have experienced what you're experiencing. So many people can come together and share that universal grief that really does bridge us all. And it's scary. It's terrifying. It's dark mm. and it's full of despair, but it's also so unifying. And I hope that you can know that too. I think you're so right in grief. I think recognizing that you're not alone and that you have potentially a community of support that you can reach out to to help get you through the ups and downs of that grief I think is so important. So thank you for sharing that with us and for spending the time this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for talking to me. Thank you. You're listening to About Empathy. This season of About Empathy has been funded by the Gold Define Award through the Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. The Tammy Latner Center for Palliative Care's vision is to allow patients and their families to experience a seamless system of caring through the embodiment of its core values of humanity, collaboration, innovation, and communication. To learn more, visit tlcpc.org. Welcome back to About Empathy. Irene and Dory, I was so thankful that Mitch took the time to speak to us about his experience and his family's experience of supporting their dad at the end of his life. And he had so many great points. And I was wondering what struck each of you So, in terms of what he shared, what stood out for you? Giovanna, for me, I feel like a theme that kept occurring, and it's a message I think we always need to be reminded of, is just the importance of presence. Mm -hmm. You know, he talks so much about how being able to provide that home hospice for his dad was so important because it provided more moments of connection that ultimately became so important in creating a meaningful end of life experience mm. and not just for the families to be able to have time with him but also you know he mentioned how you know even as healthcare providers mm. you know sometimes it's not necessarily the drugs you can provide or the medical expertise but it's just being there and making someone feel like they're not so alone like sometimes that's the most powerful medicine you can provide. I talked a little bit about in the interview about how it was such a struggle for palliative care clinicians over the pandemic with all these visitor restrictions and the palliative care units. I felt like I was spending half my time calling all the different palliative care units, asking them what their visitor policies were, just because I wanted to make sure that families could spend as much time as they could with their loved ones. And I'm always struck by, I think as physicians, oftentimes we, we want to protect patients and their families and we recommend palliative care units or residential hospices for them to spend you know the last few 
weeks or months of their lives, but there's something so powerful about being in your own home, being in a familiar environment. As someone who's practiced home palliative care before, I think is so profound. And I think there's so much more that can be done in the home that sometimes we don't really realize too. So Mm. I find recently I have been pushing more and more for patients and families if they have the desire to try to create, you know, a home hospice and try to see if end of life at home is a possibility. That's a really good point. I've practiced in a hospital and in clinics for most of my career and I haven't worked in home-based palliative care and I see the opportunities and the advantages of home palliative care and I think that was reflected in what Mitch talked about in terms of his family's experience. I do wonder about the challenges. I don't think Mitch touched on the challenges Mm -hmm. as much and so I think what we see and we see this in the palliative care literature too we see that most people do want to have their end of life in the home setting but a lot of people can't just because of the barriers that are there and I think for Harvey he had a web of support around him and some really knowledgeable family members and people who are really committed to caring for him at home. I worry oftentimes for those patients who don't have that level of family support or support from loved ones. If you're on your own or if you don't have resources that you can access over and above public health funded services, it does become challenging to have end of life at home. So I hear what you're saying, Irene, like the opportunity for for presence and connection in the home absolutely surpasses, I think, what we can do in other settings. I just worry about the challenges and barriers, especially for those people who don't have the support from loved ones and, and perhaps don't have resources that they can access. I completely agree with you. I mean, there's a bit of a privilege that's mm-hmm. associated with being able to have end-of-life care Mm. at home and not even considering whether or not your area where you live has someone, has Mm -hmm. a clinician who will come and provide home palliative care because we know in Canada Mm. there are vast swaths of this country Mm -hmm. where you can't even get a clinician to come into your home and provide Mm. palliative care. It's not even a question to begin with. There's such an inequity when it comes to that. So I completely agree around the fact that it's not for everybody. But Mm. I find sometimes when you have that structure where there is a lot of home support, sometimes there's still this pressure towards moving more to like an institution, palliative care unit or home hospice Mm -hmm. out of, I think, a sense Mm. of protection, which may lose out on some of the advantages of home palliative Mm. care. But no, I completely agree with your point. Yeah, I think there's there's two sides to it for sure. Dory, what do you think or what stood out to you? Well, I thought the book was a beautiful example of when it works, how well it works. You had the impression that You were happy that Mm -hmm. they were able to have Mm -hmm. Harvey at Mm -hmm. home. No matter whether you're at home or not, I think the book also brings out all the important things that you want caregivers to know about. Like he talked, as Irene already mentioned, that idea of being present. And I think the whole family showed a lot of resilience in getting through such a terrible illness that Harvey had at a time that the whole Mm -hmm. world was going through a pandemic. There's a beautiful part in the book too where Mitch's mom asks the dad, Harvey, what do you think the greatest gift we gave our kids was? And the dad said resilience and she agreed. Mm -hmm. When I read that and then I heard Mitch talk, I thought, yeah, there is a great deal of that in the family 
that helped them and I think would have helped them no matter whether they were in a hospital mm -hmm. setting or at home because they had some tough times at home. That chapter on honey and morphine mm -hmm. at the end, palliative care wasn't able to get the subcutaneous medications into the house. Mitch's dad was in a lot of pain and they were crushing morphine with honey and trying to get it into him. And that's one of the challenges that no matter how good home care is, when something happens quickly, families are left mm -hmm. to deal with it, you know, until they can get some help. But those 10 minutes can mm -hmm. seem very, mm -hmm. very, very long for a family. But this was a family that pulled together. There was, I think, a mm -hmm. lot of resilience that you heard in the stories that he told. So there's no question to me that not everybody mm -hmm. will mm -hmm. be able to do that. Yeah, we really wish we could have everyone have that opportunity because I think there is something beautiful. Mm. I mean, I think that's what we have to aim for. And I've done both. And I got to say, I feel more comfortable when we're in a hospice because I feel I can do more because I have the nurses around me and there's a medicine cabinet down the hall. And when it goes well at home, I'm so happy it went. But I remember being in a patient's home and you just, you couldn't get something in three minutes. You just couldn't. Mm -hmm. You might not have had that medication there. And it's a challenging feeling. Irene, you mentioned, you know, that out of protectiveness, pushing mm -hmm. for perhaps the more institutionalized because you want it to be as much care as possible. And I was thinking, you know, when... Mitch was sharing their story. And when I read his book, I thought, well, what a loving tribute to his father. And, you know, what a oh, way yeah. to leave a legacy. I don't talk to my patients all that much about strategies for legacy building and for connection as they anticipate end of life. And so his book just made me think, well, you know, for those people who are so inclined to write about their lives or to write about their loved one, like, what a great way to build a legacy. In your practices, what do you do or what do you suggest to, to your patients or to their family members about legacy building? It's so patient dependent, but encourage perhaps writing a letter, mm. especially if they had younger children, to write a letter for when, let's say, when their child mm. was going to get married and the spouse would keep the letter until mm. that time come or when they graduated, not necessarily a marriage, but, you know, when they graduated, when they turned 16, a lot of things for the younger kids, he mentioned camp. Yeah. Yeah. And we used to cut up a sheet and put the outline of the child with their arms and then cut it out and make it really pretty. And then that would be a hug that you would give to the patient who was unwell. There's so many mm. lovely things. I had one patient who, she had a long illness. But she left 365 mm. messages to her husband mm. when she died. And some of them were really short, mm. some were longer. But I thought, wow, I would never tell anyone to do that. But what a legacy she left mm. of herself, like for her spouse to mm. remember her by. And, and he would share some of them. It was really beautiful. 
There's so many things, leaving recipes. It's like you said, it's very patient specific. I think for some people, if you suggest to them, well, okay. you know, write letters, that might not might not resonate with them. Right. But you're right, you know, recipes or leaving little audio notes or videos or so person specific. I, you know, I had a patient who's very inclined to writing and he kept saying, I need the time to write the history of my family. He was writing the history of his family over generations. And so he wanted that opportunity and that time wow. to finish that story really depends on what people are inclined to do, but it's a great way to really reflect on a life and a life well lived and on the people you love. Yeah. I mean, speaking of writing these legacy letters, I came across the term ethical will recently, mm. Mm. Um, which was a term I'd never heard of. But oh. when you, if you look it up, there's all sorts of templates mm. online. And that's essentially what they are. They're like legacy letters where you're passing on, you know, your values and lessons learned on to whoever you want to pass them on mm. to. And, and I found them to be very helpful in terms of like sometimes just don't know where to start to have a bit of a template to give your patients so that they can have a starting point. Mm, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So much came out of that conversation. As we wrap up, I want to bring it back to what you said, Irene, about presence. And Mitch talked about presence with family as being important, but he also talked about the presence and the connection that they had with their oncologist, Dr. Petrella, and what she conveyed in that meeting with the family. And she talked to them about the fact that the immunotherapy was no longer working. I want to come back to that because I think it's really important for our listeners who are healthcare providers or who are students, because I think oftentimes physicians are very action oriented. Like, what do I need to do in this moment? Mm -hmm. You know, my plan is A, B, C, which is very important. But just to kind of reemphasize the importance of really just being there for someone and conveying that through silence or through words and the importance of that. I so agree with what you just said. Mitch didn't talk about this, but in the book, he talks about the importance in journalism, how he's recognized that you could go to school and learn everything you need to about journalism. He talks about that it's a medium for lyricism, wit, persuasiveness, etc. But the real profound part is the communication between writer and reader. And to me, that talked about palliative care because we have to know our stuff. We have to understand pain management, nausea management. We have to go to school. We have to become doctors. But at the end of the day, the still the important thing is the connection between the doctor and the patient and our communication. He didn't have a chance to talk about that, but it really rung out in his writing to me. And I never thought of a, a connection between journalism and palliative care before, but it, it's exactly what you were just saying. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? I'm not often surprised these days, but that was a, a surprising yeah. connection that we yes. made today between Mitch and yeah. our work. Mm -hmm. Thanks, ladies, again for this great conversation. And thanks again to Mitch Konsky, who joined us today. And his book, Home Safe, A Memoir of End-of-Life Care During COVID-19, is published and out now. And we've all read it, and we really recommend it. It's a powerful read, and we suggest it to all our listeners. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is much to be learned in the stories of the people we care for and work with. We hope the story that you have heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic conversations. We'll be back next week with another story. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. 
each episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner and Sarah May. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded virtually and funded by the Gold Define Award through the Temi Latner Centre for Palliative Care at Sinai Health in Toronto. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.